Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with seismic news. The United States and its European allies have dropped the economic hammer on Vladimir Putin and the Russian oligarchs who feed and prop up his corrupt government. President Biden, after calling Russia's move into sovereign Ukraine an invasion, unleashed three new hard-hitting financial sanctions aimed at two banks, Russia's foreign debt and the country's elites and their family members. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. The move comes in coordination with the U.K. and all 27 members of the European Union, which announced which announced their intention to sanction 351 members of the Russian Duma and 27 individuals and entities that are playing a role in this invasion. Also, Germany announced that it would halt the process of certifying the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia. The pipeline would bring Russian natural gas to Germany for sale, bypassing Ukraine. Now, before we go any further, it is important to note how significant these moves are. Russia is a kleptocracy. It's a government run by a megalomaniacal thug and his friends who seek status and personal gain at the expense of the governed. Vladimir Putin, the former KGB man working hand in hand with more than two dozen of his buddies, capitalized on the fire sale of state-owned assets in the 1990s to hoard billions of dollars for themselves. If you look at Russia's richest men, it is a web of connections that lead you all the way to the top, straight to Putin. These folks have their hands in everything, and I do mean everything. Phone companies, metals, gas and construction, and that's just to name a few. And like all crooked billionaires, they love to launder their money. Buying real estate in London, beautiful yachts on the French Riviera, condos in Miami, and luxury homes in Monaco. But here's a wrinkle. Over the last several years, Putin has been bracing for impact, restructuring his economy in anticipation of this very day, making sure Russia can withstand Western sanctions by stockpiling reserves, trimming budgets and granting the rich buddy, his rich buddies lucrative deals at home so they don't have to sweat losing international contracts. This might also help explain why Putin, whose own fortune is estimated to be somewhere between $200 billion, somewhere around $200 billion, moved his personal yacht from Germany into Russia in January. President Biden had warned that sanctions against Putin were under construction. Tonight, the U.S. and our European allies warned that if Putin did not heed their warnings, they were prepared to go even further, much further. And one arrow in their quiver remains the nuclear weapon of sanctions, cutting Russia off from the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, or SWIFT, which allows foreign banks to process transactions. Joining me now, NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley, who's reporting from Ukraine, and Keir Simmons, NBC News senior international correspondent, joining us from Moscow. And I will start with you, Keir. Um, the fact that these, these sanctions are pretty thoroughgoing— but they're, they're still yeah. holding back on the most severe, which would be cutting Russia off completely financially from SWIFT. How is all of this playing out in Russia? How, what is the reaction inside of that country? 
Well, the reaction is what you might expect, uh, Joy. So President Putin's spokesperson was asked tonight here in Moscow what his reaction was, what the, what the Putin administration, if you like, uh, reaction was to President Biden's uh, televised uh, announcement of sanctions. And he said bluntly, Dmitry Peskov, well, we didn't watch it. Now, that's the kind of response you would expect uh, from the Russians. But I think we have to be real with people uh, that these uh, sanctions that have been announced so far are limited and that the evidence suggests that President Putin isn't deterred by sanctions. And, you know, Joy, uh, we are beginning to see kind of, you know, political recrimination from various sides, including uh, the Republicans over what could or should be done, perhaps even suggesting that President Biden should be should do more. But listen, there is plenty of blame to go around. You know, you mentioned uh, those Russian reserves that, that have been built up, 600 uh, $630 billion worth of reserves. Well, President Putin has been building those since before his, uh, his famous speech in 2007, where he railed against uh, NATO. So the evidence has been there for a long time. If, if you talk about a really dramatic potential step, uh, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT payment system, well, if the West had done that, eight years ago, back in 2014, it would have had a lot more impact uh, than it is likely to have now. Sanctions in the long term can have an impact, but President Putin has been building what you could call an economic fortress. And that tells us something, not just the words that he has said over the years, but uh, that tells us something about what he has been planning and perhaps uh, what he plans uh, looking forward. And uh, look, the, the big question is, we, we know what President Putin thinks. We know uh, what President Putin's capable of. The qu big question tonight is what has he got planned? And very quickly, to stay with you for a moment here, because the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was obviously very important to Russia. It was very important to Germany as well. The fact that right. that's not happening. And I'm wondering if that fortress is strong enough to withhold, you know, his oligarchs being uh, losing their access to capital, their access to wealth, their access to banking overseas and parking their, you know, considerable assets in Miami. Is his position strong enough to withhold the people around him losing what they had to gain from interacting economically with the world? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a gas pipeline, obviously, and people talk about Europe being dependent on Russian gas. In fact, it's a codependency, of course, because Russia makes so much uh, money from gas. But, but here's the real question here. Uh, who's going to uh, help Europe economically that when Europe takes the brunt of the potential sanctions that we're looking at going forward. Uh, how is Germany going to be helped, uh, particularly if Russia chooses to respond uh, by limiting the amount of gas or even uh, cutting off gas? Th these are the fundamental questions for the West. This is how the West is going to be tested. And I don't think right now we have the answers. Just in terms of the oligarchs, Joy, uh, Russian observers point out that in the end, if you are a Russian oligarch, you owe your money, you owe your wealth to President Putin. That's the question about how much difference it makes when you put pressure on those oligarchs to President Putin and his inner circle. Uh, let me go to you. Thank you very much, Kier. Let's go to you, Matt, um, inside of Ukraine. The reaction to what is happening, is there a sense that you're getting that people inside of Ukraine feel that this is enough? Um, obviously, the support of the West is what they are, are looking for. Is the sense here that what is being done thus far is enough? 
I mean, Joy, I've been telling you uh, a couple of weeks ago that people here were saying that this wasn't going to be an invasion. You know, a lot of the anger from a couple of weeks ago was directed not at Moscow, but at Washington. People saying that, you know, this is these threats, these alarmist sort of shrill intelligence assessments, they were actually hurting Ukraine's economy, not Moscow's. Um, and now that has kind of changed. Now people are saying that actually there will be an invasion. Um, they're actually coming around to the idea that these intelligence assessments out of Washington are true. And, you know, they are really, I think a lot of people here are very happy to see these sanctions being placed. But they've been asking for sanctions from before. A lot of the more politically, uh, you know, politically involved people here were saying, why not sanction Putin now because of his threats rather than wait for an actual invasion? So now that the sanctions are coming, uh, I think a lot of people here are thinking that this is good, but a little bit too late because they wanted to see the threat averted before it started. The invasion now has started. And now, you know, with Putin feeling as though he has nothing to lose uh, or very little to lose compared to before, it makes it harder for that sort of calculus to work. All he has to do now is ramp up his invasion because he knows that the sanctions, the full complement of U.S. sanctions are coming regardless. The hammer is going to really come down on Russia, and Putin is ignoring it. He doesn't seem to be worried. As, as Kier was saying, he seems to have built this fortress around himself, and he's made it very clear that sanctions, he's kind of impervious to these sanctions. So a lot of folks here, I think, are we're expecting, we're hoping that the U.S. and the West were going to be doing these sanctions a lot earlier, and they're a little bit disappointed because they know that the troops aren't going to be coming, and they feel like this is a day late and a dollar short. Joy? Interesting reporting. Thank you very much. Really appreciate both of you. Uh, Matt Bradley, Keir Simmons, you guys are great. Thank you both very much. Joining me now is Dalip Singh, Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics. And uh, let me just go ahead and ask you that question that uh, Matt Bradley just brought up, the sense among people inside of Ukraine that these sanctions are good, um, but that they should have happened earlier. Walk us through why now and not before this invasion, as the president describes it, began. Yeah, well, good evening, Joyce. So the design of sanctions is to create leverage. Uh, and they create leverage by signaling that we're willing to impose severe costs uh, for any of Putin's actions that violate our core principles. Our core principles and those that we share uh, with our European allies and allies all across the world. If you impose those sanctions preemptively, it becomes a sunk cost and you remove your leverage for a peaceful diplomatic solution. So look, today uh, and yesterday, we and our allies and partners, we did take uh, actions that impose severe costs on Russia. You mentioned earlier, Joy, uh, we have effectively together shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This was Putin's prize for many, many years. He put $11 billion into this pipeline. Uh, billions of dollars that would have gone into his coffers will not flow. And this is a decisive break for Europe away from Russian energy. And the beginning, we think, of a more accelerated diversification away from Russian energy. Uh, you know, we've also imposed full blocking sanctions. That means we freeze all the assets and prevent any transactions with two of, large, two of Russia's major financial institutions. And we've said we will not stop there if this invasion proceeds. Even the very largest Russian institutions, uh, we can, at the press of a button, impose these same measures upon them as well. We've also barred the entire Russian government uh, from financing itself from U.S. investors or European investors. That's going to raise Russia's borrowing costs. That's going to reduce investment. That's going to reduce Russia's productive capacity. And it's going to deal Putin a very weak strategic blow. 
And that's what's within our control. We can't get into his head. We can't control his actions. We can just make this a terrible strategic choice. Uh, let me ask you, what would be the, uh, the, the, the trigger to imposing the sanctions that would cut Russia off from access to SWIFT? Because that is, you know, as you said, that's, that's ratcheting it up. What, what would be the trigger for that? Well, as a tactical matter, uh, we don't want to telegraph exactly which actions by Putin will result in uh, a particular response. And, and really, Joy, there are endless possibilities in terms of how this crisis can unfold. Uh, what we've said is no option. No option is off the table. Uh, for now, we feel like we've had other measures that are comparably severe that we can take in lockstep with our allies and partners and which don't have the same spillover effects as as the SWIFT sanction. Do you, and, and are there other sanctions regimes that, that the administration is looking to dip into? There are obviously the Magnitsky Act global Magnitsky sanctions that in theory could be leave, you know, sort of be levied against uh, Russia and its leaders. Is the U.S. looking to that? Or is there, are there other measures that you think could stop him? Because if, as our reporters have said, Putin feels impervious to sanctions, isn't moved by them, doesn't care, then what? Well, there's no such thing as a sanctions-proof economy. And one major thrust that we can deploy uh, that we haven't thus far are what we call export controls. And export controls are kind of like financial sanctions. They both deny something to Russia that it desperately needs and can't replace from anywhere else. Export controls are focused on critical technology. So think about the foundational technologies of our time, semiconductors, AI, biotech, quantum, robotics. The West and our allies and open societies, that's where these technologies are designed and where they're produced. And if we deny these technologies to Russia, it'll do two things. Number one, it'll prevent Russia from diversifying its economy outside of oil and gas, which is more or less all it is right now. And it'll prevent Russia from modernizing its economy. Putin himself has said he has strategic ambitions in aerospace, defense, uh, IT. All of those industries depend on these foundational technologies. And we can deny them with our allies and partners across Europe and importantly, Asia at a moment's notice. And I do want to ask you about Asia. You mentioned Asia. Is there confidence in the administration that China will not provide a backdoor and a way out for Putin by giving him sort of reinforcing economically what is taken away by Europe and by, by the United States? Yes, uh, we're confident in that assessment. If Russia wants to sequester itself from Western technology, from Western capital markets and from the Western economies, that's a that's a terrible strategic mistake. Just think of the G7, the major democratic economies of the world. That's more than 50% of the total. China's 15%. If you think about the financial system, the dollar, the euro, the pound, the yen, these are the dominant reserve currencies. This is how people make and receive payments. It's how they store their wealth. It's how they borrow money. The renminbi as a percentage uh, of the total on those metrics, it's in the low single digits. And finally, on technology, let me give you a data point. China imports 300 billion semiconductors each year. It produces almost none of the leading edge chips that are needed for Putin to realize his ambitions. So China is not a substitute for the West. We will keep an eye on this. And we really thank you for being here. Deputy National Security Advisor Dalip Singh, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. And up next on the readout, what you need to know about Ukrainians. Make no mistake, young and old, they are prepared to fight to defend their country from Russian aggression. Plus. We got a victory today. But it's so many families out there who don't who, who don't get victories because of people that that we have fighting for us. Come on now. Come on. Okay. 
Ahmaud Arbery's mother praises the verdict in the federal hate crimes trial of her son's killers, but slams the DOJ for pushing a plea deal. And it's hate week in Florida's Republican-controlled legislature as GOP lawmakers target LGBTQ children as well as everything in history books that makes white people feel distress. The readout continues after this. Okay, raise your hand if you know the history of Ukraine, right? Okay, not many of us. Well, what about the worst nuclear accident in history, Chernobyl, in northern Ukraine? Those of us who were around remember the 1986 disaster, the series of explosions that left the nuclear core exposed, spewing radioactive material into the atmosphere, and the devastation it wrought on the thousands of innocent citizens ravaged by radiation. The secretive Soviet Union evacuated 335,000 people and created a 19-mile-wide exclusion zone around the reactor that remains to this day. Five years after that disaster, the Soviet Union collapsed, and Ukraine achieved the independence that Vladimir Putin is now subverting. But Ukrainians are ready to fight and to defend even Chernobyl. One lieutenant colonel told The New York Times last month, It doesn't matter if it is contaminated or nobody lives here. It is our territory, our country, and we must defend it. As far as how the West can help them fight, the new tranche of sanctions announced today is a start. President Biden said there will be strictly defensive movement of U.S. troops already in Europe to reinforce our NATO allies. The question now is, will these sanctions get the fulsome support needed from Republicans? Some of the formerly norm core Republicans in the Senate have called for tough sanctions, including Lindsey Graham. But he seems to have forgotten his own weird deference to the former president's pathetic deference to Putin, arguing that President Biden's sanctions do not go far enough. Meanwhile, Republican leaders in the House claim Biden isn't being tough enough. But in supporting any sanctions against Russia, they're fighting their own base. As the most ardently Trumpist grifters in the right wing echo chamber claim Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, well, he's the real tyrant, as opposed to the former KGB officer and actual authoritarian Vladimir Putin, who is trying to take over a sovereign nation. Joining me now is Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania, who was part of a congressional delegation that visited Ukraine last month. And Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for European Affairs for the National Security Council, senior advisor for Vote Vets, and author of Here, Right Matters, an American Story. And normally I would start with the Congresswoman, but I, I will defer and ask for your forbearance as I start with uh, you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, because you, you have roots in Ukraine, family roots in Ukraine. And I wonder how it feels to you to hear Americans, including the House Republican Caucus, Post essentially calling Biden weak to the point where Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, rebuked them and said, this is this is this is called not supporting your country. Essentially, this is what disloyalty at home looks like. You have Tucker Carlson defending, standing up for taking Putin's side. Let me just play that really quick. This is Tucker Carlson. Today, we sent another letter to Vladimir Putin asking for an interview. We hope we get it. We also sent a message to the president of Ukraine. We would like that interview, too. Now, neither one of these men runs a democracy by traditional American standards. Both of them are tyrants. No, no, no. Ukraine is a democracy. And the last I will mention is your person you formerly, the administration you formerly worked for, the former president, calling the reinvasion, the further invasion of Ukraine genius and praising Putin for doing so. 
I just wonder how that reads to you as an American, um, as, as somebody who has roots in Ukraine. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Vin- Vinman. Well, thanks for having me on again, Joy. Uh, it's, it's frightening. I think it's deeply disturbing for the former president to bandwagon and to cheerlead for uh, uh, the world's probably most belligerent authoritarian and uh, an enemy of the United States that if he could, if he, th- he thought he could get away with it, would eliminate the United States in its entirety. This is the kind of person that we're dealing with. And this is who the president, the former president of the United States chooses to support. And Tucker Carlson is like the most obsequious, absurd uh, character caricature of a, you know, of a, an entertainer that's doing anything and everything he can to kind of uh, fluff up his ratings. So it, I, I, it's hard for me to take it seriously, especially when on balance, the, the consequences are so high. The human toll of what is about to unfold is going to be a catastrophe. There are going to be a enormous amount of uh, casualties, and the 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 even the folks that don't are are not casualties are going to suffer immensely. We're talking about probably millions of displaced persons and uh, lives ruined and families ruined, and the cost is going to be borne by the Russian people and the Ukrainian people. And ultimately, it'll probably be borne by uh, American citizens also, because we are in a connected world. We're going to feel some of the pain from this uh, this this major, major flare up in the, in uh, Europe. And what saddens me, yes, my family originates from that uh, portion of the world. I came over when I was four years old, so I have very few mem- memories. All my uh, family is here, uh, but I know the people. They're kind and friendly and uh, warm people. Uh, Kiev is known as the Garden City. It's a beautiful European capital. And I just feel for, for the people that are uh, something that pe- Americans just don't understand this kind of um, they don't have the perspective to understand this kind of suffering and this kind of uh, an insecurity. And I wish it's something that we never have to experience. But if we yeah. leave it up to yeah. Trump and uh, you know Carlson, they, they're, they're going to bring us there. Yeah. I mean, very well said. And, you know, Congresswoman, let, let me let me ask you a couple of questions here, because I, I know that you were in a Codell with the, you know, these congressional trips where you all go um, sort of bipartisan trips and you were in Ukraine recently. Um, and I wonder just for yourself, just as somebody who also is um, has worked you know, during the Cold War on anti-ballistic, anti-ballistic missile defense um, that served our country, your thoughts on where we stand right now? Is there going to be bipartisan support for standing by Ukraine when, to be honest with you, the Republicans are very responsive to the demands of their base? And their base right now is polling more favorably toward Putin than toward our president. Um, the ex-president is leading, you know, a sort of merry band um, of his followers toward Putin as are this media, this right-wing media. They're leading people into the arms of Vladimir Putin. So I wonder if you think that your counterparts on the other side in the Republican Party can withstand that and stand by our ally. Thank you very much for having me. I apologize for the internet connectivity issues. The answer to that question is, I sure hope so. I hope that my Republican allies, uh, colleagues on the other side of the aisle, will work together with 
with the Democrats to make sure that we put together the mother of all sanctions packages. And I believe that we have the appetite to do that. I really do think that uh, across the aisle, Republican and Democrat, we understand what is at stake. I'm grateful for the colonel sharing his personal story. My dad was that four-year-old in Ukraine. Uh, I was there in Ukraine just a few weeks ago seeing a young mother taking her little girl to dance class. This is real. These are real people who are under, under real stress, real peril, and they are a real democracy that needs defending so that we can make sure that we keep democracies like that, keep the continent of Europe stable and secure. Uh, the stakes are way, way too hard for, high for us to be playing partisan politics at this point in time. Is, I mean, it has to be ironic for you as somebody who did work in anti-ballistic missile defense you know, during the Cold War. It's hard to believe that you are even old enough to have been doing that. But uh, I mean, for what is this change? Can you wrap your mind around this change on the other side in the direction Ronald Reagan must be spinning in his grave? It's, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. Is it hard for you? It's very, very um, otherworldly. I, I separated from the military in 1993, and it feels as though 30 years later, nearly uh, 30 years later, everything old is new again. We're having the very same conversations about the very same, in some cases, the very same cast of characters. I joke that my internet connection is because Putin is, you know, around, but it's, it's really not a joke. It's the same cast of characters, and we are back where we were just about 30 years ago in many ways. Yeah. And, and last question for you, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. In your view, should the end result of this be that Putin gets the thing he wants the least, which is that NATO opened its doors to Ukraine? I, I know that they have to do some things in terms of anti-corruption, et cetera. But do you think that's the answer here, that, no, we should build NATO, make it bigger, add Ukraine? We should definitely keep the open door policy. But frankly, uh, on the in the aftermath of a huge a huge major human tragedy, there is also going to be the unfolding of a, another tragedy, which is a, a great suffering amongst the Russian population. Yeah. Uh, Russian country will be ostracized, but we will probably have we may very well end up with two potent new allies in NATO: Sweden and Finland. Both of those countries were outside the um, outside of NATO and reluctant. They had very unique partnerships with, with the U.S. and uh, NATO alliance, but they didn't want to join. They are now seriously considering it. They would be potent additions to the alliance. And I think, frankly, if depending on how this unfolds uh, and, and the duration of Russia's hostilities, if it's not able to achieve its objectives, uh, the Russians could be a slowly bled uh, white with regards to insurgencies, with regards to uh, support flowing in from from Europe and from uh, the NATO alliance. This is just going to uh, unfold over the course of uh, the, the military phase might be short, but the rest of this is going to unfold over yeah. months and years with Russia as a, as a international pariah. As a pariah nation. And they have chosen to be to do so. Yeah, Putin made that decision. Um, Congresswoman Christy Houlihan, thank you very much. Thank you for your service. And thank you for your service and for being here. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Thank you both. Still ahead. A verdict in the federal hate crimes trial of three Georgia men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. The latest on that and what it means for Arbery's family. Next on The Readout, we'll right back. Tomorrow marks two years to the day that Ahmad Arbery went out for a run like he had done so many times before. Only this time, the 25-year-old black man was chased down by three white men in pickup trucks, cornered, shot, 
and killed. Today, those three men, Travis and Gregory McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, were convicted on all counts in their federal hate crimes trial. A jury unanimously found that their actions were directly motivated by the color of Arbery's skin. Each had previously been convicted of murder and sentenced to a life sentence in prison. Today's outcome is being described by civil rights leaders like the Reverend Al Sharpton as a precedent-setting verdict that even in the Deep South, the feds will convict you of hate actions. It's an important moment following an attack that has been described by lots and lots of people as a modern-day lynching. Joining me now is civil rights attorney Charles Coleman Jr. And I want to note that tomorrow, because it is the anniversary, is Ahmaud Arbery Day in the state of Georgia. It was declared as such. Um, so that is official now. But uh, can you just explain to us uh, lay people, what does what does the hate crimes federal conviction have? It, does it relate in some way to the state crimes trial? Does it do they impact each other and the sentences that these men will serve? Well, good evening, Joy. They don't impact each other. What viewers need to understand is that the federal hate crime case that we just saw a verdict in was about the motive. It was about the why. It was about the fact that at the end of the day, what the jury found was that these defendants violated Ahmaud Arbery's civil rights. And they did it because they were motivated by racial animus and racial hatred. Whereas in the state case, it was really about the what. Did they actually commit the crime that they were charged for? And in that case, they were also found guilty. And so both of these things are independent of one another, but they do come together to paint a much clearer picture for the public as to what happened here and as to why. And let me play um, for you. Thank you for clarifying that. Just to be one, one more quick question on that, actually. If, let's say, and it seems unlikely that their state case would be overturned, that their convictions would be overturned, would, would, is the federal conviction sort of a backup that essentially they would still have to serve time for the federal conviction? Well, yes. Any appeal that was given on the state case would not impact the federal case and vice versa. And so these cases are independent from one another. They are separate charges and should be viewed as two separate occurrences. So whatever happens on appeal, and I don't think, to your point, it is likely that we will see a successful appeal by the defendants in either case. But if by chance that were to occur, it would not impact the other case one way or the other. Got it. Okay, let me play Wanda Cooper Jones. Um, and, and she was feisty. She was very fiery today and had been with good reason. And she was actually calling out the Department of Justice and calling out one person in the Department of Justice by name, uh, despite how happy she was about this verdict. Um, take a look. I spoke to Christian Clark yes. and, the, and the lead attorney, Tara Lyons, begging them to please not take this plea deal. They ignored, they ignored my cry. What we got today, we wouldn't have gotten today if it wasn't for the fight that the family What the DOJ, on what the DOJ did today, they was made to do today. Come on. It wasn't because what they wanted to do. They were made to do their job today. And so Kristen Clark's boss, Attorney General Merrick Garland, responded to her. Here's what he said. I cannot imagine the pain that a mother feels uh, to have her son run down and then gunned down uh, while taking a jog on a public street. My heart goes out to her and to the family. That's really all I can say about this. 
And I'm wondering what you make of that. I mean, they offered a plea deal. I will note that Axios has done the numbers and the Department of Justice has declined to prosecute 82 percent of hate crime suspects between 2015, between 2005 and 2019. More than 55 percent of the decisions came down to insufficient evidence. The second most cited reason was for prioritization of federal resources. So DOJ doesn't really they're not in the business of prosecuting very many hate crimes. What do you make of the criticism by this mom? Well, Joy, I think that it's important that we understand the complexity of what we're talking about with this conversation. Two things can be true at the same time. I think it's important to note that Kristen Clark, as a black woman, is the first woman to lead the DOJ civil rights unit. And because of what you just mentioned, many of these cases have never gone prosecuted. And so she does deserve some kudos there in terms of the fact that she was willing to step into this arena and press hard for a conviction in this case. At the same time, speaking as a former prosecutor, it is important to understand the perspective of families and victims' families in terms of not wanting to see plea bargains offered. I have to applaud the resilience and the perseverance of a Black mother in this regard, and her uh, her conviction is laudable. It is to be applauded, the fact that she wanted her day in court. She wanted yeah. a trial to take place. And so I don't necessarily know that there is a right or wrong answer. I think that She's entitled to her feelings regarding the DOJ, and I understand where they come from, as did yeah. Attorney General Garland. But at the same time, I also think that we have to contextualize this moment, understanding that this does not happen very often. And were it not for the efforts of Kirsten Clark, perhaps we would not be here at all. Yeah, we have to give kudos to Kristen Clark for winning that. Um, I would note for our audience that there's a former prosecutor who's still um, waiting um, for trial, who was indicted, um, who's accused of helping shield these suspects in that shooting. And uh, her trial is going to happen to her. her name is Jackie Johnson. She's yet to be tried on those charges. Um, so that we're still waiting on as well. And the jury makeup here uh, was sort of what we were hoping for in this world, right? It was a mixed race jury, eight white, three black, one Hispanic. Uh, guilty on all counts. Um, thank you very much, Charles Coleman Jr. Really appreciate you. Up next, Florida's legislature begins debating two ugly, divisive right-wing bills. But opposition voices are having an impact. The latest from Florida, straight ahead. Back in a sec. The Florida state legislature is going into overdrive on repressive, harmful legislation, which is why they were anointed yesterday's absolute worst. The draconian 15-week abortion ban, with no exceptions for rape or incest, advanced yesterday and will get a floor vote next week. And today, the state house debated two other extreme bills, their anti-CRT Individual Freedom Act and what opponents are calling the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is legislated erasure of LGBTQ students, prohibiting classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in certain grade levels. There was one small bit of progress an amendment that would require schools to out their students to their parents was withdrawn after the uproar it rightfully caused yesterday. The law, however, still only allows schools to prohibit sharing that information with parents if the disclosure would result in abuse, abandonment or neglect. The debate over the bill today was fiery and extremely personal for many members. Meanwhile, the discussions surrounding the so-called individual freedom bill centered on the line that says it's discrimination for an individual to feel guilt, anguish or other forms of psychological distress because of action in which the individual played no part committed in the past by other members of the same race. With a sponsor saying that teachers will be fine if they just stick to the curriculum. It was an overarching theme during both debates today. The Republican sponsors make it seem like any Democratic concerns were just like no big deal. Nothing to see here. 
the teacher needs to follow that curriculum that has been approved by the school district. If they follow that curriculum, there shouldn't be a problem. Now, we're in our bill we're prohibiting someone talking about different families. You're saying that it's not going to stop the speaking about different families, but cause of action is incredibly subjective. So how, how is it my daughter's going to feel comfortable remaining in a classroom or commenting on anything when at any moment someone could go into the school and file against her? The idea that somehow we, within this bill, um, we are preventing a teacher from having discussions with their um, students is just incorrect. But as Democrats point out, both bills are subjective based on feelings or, or what someone might not find appropriate. Oh, and it got even worse with LGBTQ lawmakers begging their colleagues to see their humanity and reconsider or amend the bill. Those arguments failed. More on that next. LGBTQ people are normal, healthy part of this world. I'm sorry, it's just, it's incredulous to me that I have to be standing here defending my humanity. This singles us out as a prohibited topic, as taboo, as dangerous, censoring it, banning it, telling schools they can't say gay or can't say trans as part of instruction means that we are slowly being erased. And I will not stand by and do nothing while that happens, members. Republicans listened to LGBTQ plus state representatives and their allies plead with them to change the don't say gay bill and acknowledge their humanity during the debate. They put forward multiple amendments, which failed. And despite those pleas that that discriminatory bill, as well as the anti-history individual freedom bill, are likely to pass later this week. With me now, Democratic Florida State Representative Fentrice Driscoll and Brandon Wolf, press secretary for Equality Florida, a Pulse nightclub survivor. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Representative, I will start with you. What what were the answers from the Republican members when people came up and gave their heartfelt stories and concerns saying, don't do this to us and our kids? What was the answer? Well, first of all, hi, Sora Joyce. Thank you for having me. Uh, hey, Sora. Driscoll here from the Florida House. Hi. Yes. So uh, what's so troubling about this bill is that even in the face of our own members sharing their lived experiences, sharing the stories of their family members and their loved ones, saying this will harm LGBTQ plus youth, this will erase us from history. You had our Republican colleagues saying, no, this is actually just about parental rights. But it's not about that. That's a red herring. Many of the provisions of the bill that relate to parental rights are already other provisions in law. So again, that is a red herring. This is absolutely a sustained and targeted attack against our LGBTQ youth and their families. You know, Brandon, one of the changes that you pointed out um, on your social media feed and, and, and let me know as well yesterday that one of the worst parts of the bill was changed um, that would have required teachers to out their students. That has been changed, but it's still not great. I mean, it still allows teachers to out their students um, unless they can somehow determine that the students will be harmed. Can you just talk about what that would mean for a kid, a seventh grader, let's say, um, that was subject under this law? Yeah, I appreciate it. First of all, it's evidence that public pressure works because Representative Harding filed that amendment on Friday and faced incredible backlash for it almost immediately because it would have forced schools to out students to a parent they know is abusive. Putting a child in harm's way knowingly is absolutely unconscionable, and the state government has no place doing that in our society. 
But let's also not forget that he was willing to propose it in the first place. And this entire bill is rooted in homophobia, in transphobia. And I just want to paint a picture for people who are watching. What we saw today was a tale of two Floridas, one in which elected officials like Representative Driscoll do their work. They represent their constituents. They fight for the dignity and well-being of all young people, where they're willing to ask tough questions in defense of the lives of society's most vulnerable. And then you have another in which people like Representative Harding and other cynical politicians are willing to use their ambition to win out over the people of Florida, where they're so drunk on their own power that they are willing to put children in harm's way in order to achieve their political aims. And by the way, where we, the taxpaying people of Florida, have to pay the price for their political ambitions. So as you said, yes, the amendment was atrocious, and it's a good thing that it's gone, and it's a testament to everyone who spoke out against it. But the overall bill is terrible, would still put children in harm's way, and would erase LGBTQ people from classrooms across the state. Yeah, and, and I want to point out that the Trevor Project uh, has a, uh, some data out that's actually pretty frightening. Forty-two percent of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempts attempting suicide um, in the past year. So this is a very serious issue. Um, let me come back to you, um, Representative. The, cumul- the, the sort of cumulative sum of what these Republicans are doing, this 15-week abortion ban, this bill that's essentially saying any white child should never feel any discomfort in history class, or teachers can be sued. They don't make a lot of money, but they can then be sued um, and sanctioned. Combining that with this don't say gay bill, which essentially says that a set of students can't even talk about themselves, who their parents are, if they have two moms, they can't say that out loud in class. I don't understand how they think this is a growth strategy for Republicans, but they clearly do. They think that they, they can just ser- super serve, I guess, what, a, a small number of conservative Christian Floridians. It, it, do, do your colleagues on the other side behind the scenes tell you that they understand that this is insane? There are some who do. There are some who will have those conversations in private, but never on the actual floor where we're debating the bill. But, Joy, you really just hit the nail on the head of something. And, I, and I'm glad that you did, because when you take all of these bills in concert, whether it's the 15-week abortion ban that is styled after what Mississippi is doing and that is in litigation right now at the, in the Supreme Court. And I don't know why Florida would want to do anything that Mississippi is doing, given that Mississippi has some of the worst health care outcomes in these United States. When you take that bill, when you take the anti-woke bill, when you take this uh, don't say gay bill, what you are seeing is a concerted effort to suppress our stories. You're seeing a concerted effort to suppress the stories of women and their lived experiences and their lives in context. Yes, you have to continue to consider the potential life of the fetus, but you also have to consider the actual life of the mother. Under this yeah. bill, her story gets suppressed. When you look at what we're dealing with with Don't Say Gay, we have our stories that are our, our stories of our LGBTQ plus community that are being suppressed. And then when you look at the Stop Woke Act, you know, in a time where we the whole pur- the whole purpose of teaching history is to teach our young people that no America is not perfect. No, we don't always live up to our ideals. But if you learn about history, you can make sure that we don't repeat those same mistakes. And we can always work hard to try to achieve that more perfect union. We're suppressing stories. Indeed. Very well said. And I'm going to give you um, the last word on this, Brandon. If you could, you know, I don't know if they're listening at this point, but if you could talk to these legislatures who still have a chance to vote on Thursday about these bills, what would you tell them uh, that, that might convince them to stand down? You know, I. I don't know if they would listen, and I don't know if I would waste my breath on it. Um, What I would do is take this opportunity to speak to LGBTQ young people in the state of Florida and tell them that you are loved exactly as you are. 
that we get up every single day and we fight for you because you are worth fighting for. That I was you not that long ago and that I'm not going to rest. I'm going to show up to every hearing. I'm going to show up to every floor debate. I'm going to continue to show up in lawmakers' offices and help elevate your stories because they're worth telling. We are not going to sit idly by while GOP lawmakers in Florida try to erase LGBTQ young people. We want them to know we're fighting for them. You are seen. Uh, and for all of you in Florida, you know, I echo every word that both of my wonderful guests just said. Um, thank you, State Representative Fentrice Driscoll, Brandon Wolf. You guys are brilliant. And that is tonight's readout. 